Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. If you have family or friends who don't have cable or digital or uh, satellite or broadcast television, they can go to uh, www.hotm.tv and watch the show live streaming video from anywhere in the world. Uh, So we ask you to give them a call, tell them they can do that. An announcement from our good friend, Russell. He... uh, he says that at the Bible Baptist Church, uh, a Sunday musical event with an inspirational message from Pastor Marshall Warnicke about how to renew our faith and hope in these trying times is going to occur Sunday, March 8th, 11 a.m. and again at 6 p.m. Bible Baptist Church at Bangor Highway and 4700 South. Free refreshments and fellowship after the message. So we do that for Russell, who's a great supporter and friend of the show and ministry. Calvary Campus, verse-by-verse Bible instruction, Bible classes, Sunday from 2.30 to 3.30 p.m. at the University of Utah, and then at Weber State and Utah State, 7 to 8 at night. Everyone is welcome as we gather for the perfecting of the saints, the work of the ministry, and the edifying of the body of Christ. This is a place uh, for people who uh, have been LDS or are searching, looking to Christianity, haven't uh, found a church, um, are not comfortable with going into the culture of the Christian community yet, especially from the LDS. It's kind of a culture shock for some. And so it's kind of a transitional place. We teach the word, we pray together, we pray with you. And then when you are ready to maybe uh, get into a regular, good, solid Uh, Christian church in your community. We can help you find one. We'll go from there. Go to www.calvarycampus.com for more information about that. Apologies uh, again for the slow response to the emails. Um, We do read all of them. I promise you we appreciate them and uh, forgive us for the slow delay. We're a little backordered on the books as well, but we're getting there and uh, we're going to take care of that as soon as possible. We had a call from someone a few weeks ago who said he was an African-American and that he was impressed, actually, with the way the LDS have always responded, always responded to black people in the church. He says that relative to some other uh, faiths that he uh, has studied about in the South, Mormonism looks like a shining star. Well, how about a moment in history tonight to kick things off? January uh, 1953, Brigham Young instructed the Utah legislature to legalize slavery. His purpose is stated simply, we must believe in slavery, he said. In 1859, Young said about slavery, we consider it a divine institution and not to be abolished 
until a curse pronounced upon Ham shall have been removed from his descendants. I'm guessing that the curse uh, pronounced upon Ham that he is speaking of, uh, black skin, was removed in 1978 when Spencer W. Kimball said that all male uh, people could hold their priesthood. So I would like an LDS member to call and explain why people are still born with black skin if this curse has been removed and black people can now carry their priesthood since 1978. By the way, in September of 1859, the Salt Lake City clerk recorded the sale of a 26-year-old Negro boy, quote-unquote, for $800 to one William H. Hopper. Up until federal law ended slavery in the U.S. territories, some African-American slaves were even paid as tithing. For a church that claims to be the restored, full restored truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, why would God restore an evil like slavery into the midst? Go to www.utlm.org for more information. In 1 John it says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Wise Christians would never confide implicitly in anyone who, who professes to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit or professes to be Christian um, if there were things that were suspect about their doctrine. Remember, Colossians 2.8 says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. The true and false teachers of religion alike claim to be under the influence of the Spirit, and it is of vital importance that all claims and pretensions, and or pretensions, be examined. Claims of being Christian, just saying I'm Christian, mean very little if somebody has a bunch of other things that make you wonder about their Christianity. In the apostolic age, every claim was subjected to proper proof before it was conceded. All pretensions to divine inspiration or being authorized teachers of religion were being examined by proper tests because there were many false and delusive uh, teachers who set up claims in the world at that time, and there still are today. We test these spirits by a comparison of the doctrines which they profess to hold uh, and by the fruits of the fruit that this doctrine produces in their life. Um, we are often told that Mormonism is true because one, it is so large and is growing so fast, and two, because of its fruits. First of all, largeness is not an indicative of truth. Um, in fact, in this world, largeness would usually indicate more so, it seems, possibly fraud and deception. If we look at the largest, most powerful institutions on earth versus the small, humble beginnings and the growth of true Christianity, I'm not sure if largeness is really indicative of truth. And the fruits of being a Christian cannot be mistaken for material evidences. Jesus said there would be many who would cast out devils in his name. There would be many who would do many wonderful works. And Jesus would say to them, I don't even know who you are. Don't confuse works with Christian fruit. Christian fruit is spiritual. 
It's love, it's peace, it's temperance, it's all the long suffering, all the things that are mentioned in Ephesians 5. Christian works are based in love for him. Um, recently, a good friend emailed me something that is the most deceptive, conniving website I have ever seen. And I want you to take a look at the front page of this website. We're going to show you the front page here. And I want you to observe a few things. You can see on the screen, up in the far left corner, it says Christian Studies, the Foundation for Christian Studies. And you can see they use the dove, and they, can, they use the, I can't pronounce that in the Greek, the ichthys, but it's the fish. You see those two symbols there. You don't see the cross up in there, which is important. Now, they call this the Foundation for Christian Studies. What is behind all this wool and fleece? Uh, Mormon men and women. This is an LDS site promoting Mormonism in the clothing of Christianity. I personally have enormous issues with this, aside from the fact that they are being duplicitous and completely deceptive here in a way that is, uh, is very difficult to perceive. We're going to show you a video from, from this site in a second. A 40-second video, and I'm gonna, we're going to show you seven things in that 40-second clip that you might, if you're not thinking or if you're searching to be a Christian, you might say, wow, that sounds great. But if you just think about it relative to the word, you're going to be amazed. Now, the, pers- the things I have, aside from the fact that it's so deceptive, is the LDS Church Mormonism has historically attacked Christianity. It is at the base of their religion. In fact, if you, the, the temple films, which when I went through the temple, the temple films have a preacher dressed as a Christian preacher who is in the employment of Satan. And Satan tells this preacher to go out and teach the children of men. And the preacher does this. And you see him interact with Adam and Eve representing all people. And, uh, you know, that's how they're represented. So this is, uh, on that hand, very duplicitous. Joseph Smith claimed that God told him that all creeds were an abomination to him. Now, we're talking back 1820. There were some very good Christian men and women who had suffered, been martyred throughout uh, a thousand years and more, and still existing then. And Joseph says that God said all the creeds are an abomination to him. The second thing that bugs me greatly is that they use the the dove, uh, which looks like a Calvary Chapel dove, but it's a little bit altered, and they use the the sign of the fish, which I won't go into the history of what that is. There, There you can see that. They omit the cross, so they're, they're giving you something there, and they use those two symbols as though it was their right. Now, these are very sacred icons to Christians who are into icons because they mean something substantial to us in addition to the cross of Christ. Just imagine if you started up a website and you put some of their iconography up on your website, like the Mormon Temple or Angel Moroni, and you called yourself the Latter-day Saints, and you just taught biblical Christianity and refused, they would be on you with a pack of lawyers quicker than dogs on meat. They're using the hate card more and more against anyone who questions their deceptive schemes. They don't back down. So let's just take from this site, they have a button. It's it's quite a site. And uh, let's look at this 40-second video. Pay very close attention. See if you can find seven things Uh, We'll go five things that are not correct. Let's go ahead and do it.
God is our Heavenly Father. We are His children. God sent us into the world to experience mortality and learn faith. God gave us His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, as our Savior and Redeemer. Following His miraculous public ministry, Jesus Christ atoned for the sins of the world, was crucified, and rose again to take His place at the right hand of God. Okay, so uh, you have your five things. I had seven. The first, the dove, then the fish. But the first thing they say is God is our Father. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So right there they make an ontological difference and between what, Christian teach, what Christianity teaches that God is from the Bible and what Mormons claim God is. The second thing they say is we are His children. John 1, 12 through 13, uh, verses 12 through 13 make it very plain that we are not born his children. We are not his children. And then it says that we were sent to earth. So it implies the LDS, premortal existence belief, that we were all spirits and God the Father sent us to earth and we were his children, children tacitly from birth. Christianity teaches that we are creatures and we are not his children until... Uh, we have been born again by His Spirit. And if you read the Gospel of John, chapter 1, 12 and 13, it is completely evident that this is true. Finally, it says Jesus atoned for the sin. And guess what they show when it, they say Jesus atoned? They showed Him in the garden. There's, there's no biblical evidence of this whatsoever. This was a construct of Joseph Smith's mind. Takes it off the cross. And so they say Jesus atoned, they show him in the garden, and then he uh, was crucified. And it shows, then it shows him on the cross. So right there, 40 seconds of the first video clip, that's the first one we looked at, and that's the first 40 seconds of it, it shows you that you can have five errant teachings right there in this deceptive, uh, horrible uh, website. We've been wondering whether to even give it to you because there's the idea that, hey, we're going to... Uh, we're going to promote it, but we want to warn you about it too. So you have the website name. If you don't, you can email us and we'll talk to you about it. But please tell your Christian uh, friends, uh, you know, and they have the power and money too to get it to be the number one thing. You type in Christianity, Google, you're probably going to begin to see this. They have that and it is taking over. They're very uh, smart technologically. They have the money to do it. Uh, hang on to your hats, kids. And with that, let's uh, turn this to the Lord so I can calm down Lord, we love you, and I need you, uh, we all need you, and we pray you'll open our eyes and ears, you'll soften our heart, you will uh, teach us through your spirit, we pray you will bring those who are searching to your truth, uh, not my truth, not anyone else's on this earth's truth, but your truth, and do it through your spirit. We pray for our studio, our studio audience, and our viewing audience throughout the world, YouTube, we pray for them, in Jesus' name, amen. Of all the shows we have ever done, and in all probability of all the shows we will ever do, the next few are going to be the most disputable, uh, and yet possibly the most fascinating of all. Disputable because I'm going to take some liberties in an area of conjecture, and I'm going to present them which admittedly may or not be whole or complete. They may not even be valid, but they seem very reasonable. I wouldn't present this if I didn't think there was something to it. 
Unlike some of the other research we have presented on the life and person of Joseph Smith Jr., these next few programs are built on an inexact science, which we'll never be able to prove one way or another. Nevertheless, the parallels and possible connections of this information are nothing short of amazing, and I believe quite possible that they will help us understand what drove the man, Joseph Smith Jr. Dr. William D. Moraine of uh, Graceland College, Grinnell College and Harvard Medical School wrote a book. He received his medical training at Harvard's Peter Bent Brigham Hospital and Children's Hospital Medical Center and in plastic surgery at Stanford Medical Center. He retired from two decades of academic practice, which means he taught doctors uh, medicine. After teaching as a professor of plastic surgery at Dartmouth Medical School, he's the author of more than a hundred scientific and literary publications, including this book that's titled "The Sword of Laban: Joseph Smith and the Dissociated Mind." What makes Dr. Moraine's work so credible is that he has had decades of hands-on experience with children who have suffered traumatic events in their lives, particularly traumatic medical events. He understands their behaviors prior, during, and after such trauma. Additionally, Dr. Moraine actually taught at Dartmouth Medical School, and this is a school that was founded by a Dr. Nathan Smith, no relation to Joseph that we know of, who happened to be the doctor who operated on Joseph Smith Jr. when he was a boy. This connection will prove uh, invaluable since this author understands the practices and procedures Dr. Nathan Smith used upon Joseph Smith Jr. back then. He has, has access to all the records. I want to thank Dr. Moraine for his insightful, detailed, and expertly referenced book. Uh, by the way, it can too be purchased from utlm.org. Let me begin with a summary of Dr. Moraine's position and then spend the next few weeks explaining how he arrived at these conclusions and then provides amazing evidentiary support for his theory. Simply put, Dr. Moraine believes that Joseph Smith Jr. suffered an extreme and documented early life experience and he retreated into his mind into a kind of fantasy world of violence, persecution, and revenge from which he would never completely emerge. Then, as an adolescent, another bizarre and documented experience would contribute more fantasies to his already traumatized psyche. Finally, the Joseph Smith as a man would literally face all these same fears from an experience that he has as an adult, which almost um, reenacts exactly what he experienced as a child. Uh, when we detail this in the next week, you're going to be amazed. All of this, uh, add, add to all of this the fact that his mother and father certainly had magic practices and dabbled in the occult, that he also was born with natural charm and charisma, he had a penchant for storytelling, and you have the root source of Joseph Smith's Mormonism, which Dr. Moraine uh, undergirds with a body of fascinating evidence from things Joseph Smith said and did, beginning with the Book of Mormon. Very little is known about Joseph Smith before the age of 10, or what most people would understand in human beings to be the most formative years. We do know a few things about his family circumstances, however. 
First, Joseph was born into a family of extreme poverty. With his father having lost all their money to an investment scheme just prior to Joseph's birth. Second, Joseph was a middle child. Alvin was the oldest, and then Hiram, and they were alive at the time when Joseph's parents enjoyed dowry money, which helped them live in kind of a reputable life. Sophronia was born two and a half years before Joseph, so that's three children. Then Joseph was born. Two and a half years later, Samuel was born. Ephraim was born two years later, but died. William was born a year later. Then Caroline was born the following year. Then two more children were born, Don Carlos and Lucy, later on. So while Joseph was, when he was six and a half years old, he was in the middle of seven children, four of them being younger than he was. Referring to Joseph Smith's mother, Lucy Mack Smith, she wrote, quote, nothing occurred in his early life except those trivial circumstances which are common to that state of human existence, so I pass them in silence. Um, but she and her son, Joseph Smith Jr., both commented on the experience I'm going to detail for you tonight. Looking at the family size and circumstance, it is of no wonder that Lucy Mack Smith couldn't remember anything about Joseph's young life. I, it's probable she had a hard time giving him any attention at all. I am also a middle child uh, of six, and older siblings in a family like that, because they're the first teenagers to enter that phase of life, seem to have all the attention in that way. And then the younger kids are needing their parents for mere survival, so us younger guys are just, our middle guys are just left to wander the streets aimlessly. Um, it's just a fact in families and, and they have like the middle child syndrome and they have the oldest child syndrome and things like that, whatever, however that plays into it. I would suggest though that Joseph felt shorthanded in the parental attention department. Dr. Moraine suggests the same. And as a result, he would develop a need for attention. It's possible that Joseph actually received this attention during the only recorded event of his life prior to 10 years of age, when he was only a six-year-old boy about to turn seven. Now, I want you to take a moment here and just try to imagine this. The size of the family, the absolutely dire financial circumstances, the parents' allegiance to magical practices and mystical thinking, and this six-year-old child lacking attention. You got it? In 1812-1813, a typhoid epidemic swept through the Connecticut River Valley and Sophronia was the first in the Smith family to be hit. After three months of care, the family physician essentially gave her up for lost and Lucy, the mother, decided that she was going to step in and save her. Lucy, in her retrospective memoirs, which were penned years later after she was in the church, wrote that it was her, quote, pleas to God in prayer and supplication that saved the child. But other documents uh, strongly suggest that in the Smith family, there would also have been a variety of magical incantations and occult-like appeals to aid in her healing. Soon Hiram was attacked with the disease, then Alvin, and then the four other children all in this home. Joseph's mother had been pushed to the brink of exhaustion. But it was Joseph, the six-year-old, who would develop complications to this disease. This would be a blessing and a curse because on one hand, how and where the disease reformed in his body would create in him intolerable pain. But on the other hand, it would also gain him, at least in part, the attentions of his mother. 
After two weeks of fever, a painful abscess formed in the lymph nodes of Joseph's left upper arm. A doctor was brought in, and of typical country doctors of the day, he misdiagnosed the pain as a sprain and suggested what they called a hot shovel, which was merely some sort of warm compress. For two weeks, the pain increased. As much as, uh, as would the desires, as would the fulfillment of his desires from attention from his mother, who, according to the Oedipal theory, would serve as an age-appropriate object of Joseph's fantasies. It is suggested that around this age, boys tend to look at their mothers with a certain attraction and that they often fantasize about rescuing their mothers from this difficult life they have with their husbands and seek to kill the husband, which they would never do, but it's this fantasy that they say, some say, children have. I'm not saying I buy into it or not, it's a theory. A second visit by the doctor was required as the pain and swelling became intolerable for the six-year-old. This time, the doctor took a medical scalpel and plunged it into this uh, swollen skin uh, without anesthesia and released of what was described as a full quart of pus. Dr. Moraine states that while nothing more is known about this operation, the event of men coming in bearing knives in association to the feelings the young boy would have for his mother and her attentions would be of great interest. Because the pain was relieved, however, the event would have been easily forgotten and dealt with normally, as with most people. We all have traumatic experiences like that. But there were further complications. The bacteria Salmonella typhi spread to Joseph's bloodstream and then found another home in the upper portion of his left tibia, with the marrow being replaced by a second abscess. Dr. Moraine writes that an infection in this area of the periosteal can be more severe than in any other part of the body. This pain went untreated by medical doctors for more than two weeks. A six-year-old boy, uh, attention from his mother and his age-appropriate inclinations and ideations of his mother and extreme pain, just keep doing the math, from his vast experience in dealing with children in pain, Dr. Moraine writes that any seven-year-old would have found such, noxious, such a noxious event to be terrifyingly frightening and excruciating. To add to his ministry, under the added strain of Joseph's illness, Joseph's mother Lucy could not contribute her attentions any longer. She wrote, During this time I carried him much of the time in my arms in order to mitigate his suffering as much as possible. In consequence, I was taken very ill myself. The anxiety of my mind that I experienced, together with my physical overexertion, was too much for my constitution, and my nature sank under it. Remember our talking about David, Joseph's son, last week, that he too, as an adult, talked about his anxiety of his mind, and he described himself also as sinking. After three weeks of sheer agony, the Smith parents called for a surgeon. Why they waited so long before Joseph could receive professional medical treatment is unknown. Maybe the Smith doctors had, uh, Smith family had grown to mistrust doctors. Maybe they were relying on prayers or magic or the stars or home remedies. Uh, we don't, maybe they couldn't afford a doctor, but maybe Joseph even, it suggests, begged them not to bring a doctor because the last one inflicted so much pain. Whatever the reason, 
You can't imagine such suffering in a six-year-old in this day and age and under today's modern medical care. Then comes another man wielding a knife. This time, says Dr. Moran, physical restraint certainly would have been required in order to drain the leg of its poison. Lucy Max Smith wrote, the surgeon came, he made an incision eight inches long on the front side of the leg between the knee and the ankle. No anesthesia was used. When we come back, we'll continue to tell the story about what happened to Joseph as a six-year-old boy and how it affects the way he formulated Revelation. We're back. All right. Um, Joseph's mother wrote, this action of cutting his leg to the bone from uh, the, below his knee down the tibia, this relieved the pain in a great measure, and the patient was quietly comfortable until the wound began to heal. When the pain became as violent, uh, then the pain became as violent as ever. Return, end quote. Now, have you, if you've ever had a really bad illness, for instance, a persistent sinus infection or lung infection, and you've gone through several cycles of antibiotics, uh, and you begin to improve, and then suddenly you feel it coming back, you know that it's just a terrible feeling. You wonder if this is the thing that's going to kill you, right? Well, imagine that you are a seven-year-old, and you have experienced this pain, and you think that this thing the doctor did had healed you, or was going to heal you, and suddenly you sense this pain coming back. Couple this with the age-appropriate fantasies of him that could have been there, heightened by his mother's recent attentions, and the fact that it is a man, and most likely men, have, who, who would have restrained him during this fleshly castration of his leg, and you get to begin to see the beginnings of this psychic break. But it's the only the beginning. A knife-wielding surgeon then returned for a second assault upon his leg. This time, says Dr. Moraine, he would have slashed more deeply into the festering wound all without anesthesia, and cut away the swollen infected tissues from the underlying tibia bone in an effort to expose a labyrinth of hidden pockets of pus. Dr. Moraine states, by this time Joseph's emotional health should have been as precarious as that of his leg. Having worked with many young boys the same age who have been exposed to repeated treatments of trauma, especially burn victims, Dr. Moraine writes of Joseph, quote, it is doubtful that we, he would have maintained at any time the normal controls on his behavior that his family had previously come to expect of him. More likely, he would have regressed into more infantile behavior, including loss of bowel and bladder control with outbursts of nightmares of the most horrible kind. But the worst was yet to come. More factors were now coming to play within the psyche of the young child. His parents, who were supposed to protect him, had him on his mother's, and his mother's side abandon him and on his father's side actually held him down. Dr. Moraine suggests that Joseph would somehow co connect his secret Oedipal thoughts and his guilt of having them with the infliction of pain being heaped upon him by men wielding swords and holding him bound. 
Under such stresses and or extremes of pain, most children will at some point or another experience what psychologists or psychiatrists call a dissociative uh, disconnect. That is, the mind takes the trauma that you're not able to deal with and separates it or dissociates it into another part of the brain that is a complete secret dark place that you never think about it at all. Dr. Moraine claims such dissociation occurs quite frequently with children who undergo extreme medical trauma like physical pain or who witness something terrifying or horrifying. And they all share these similar responses which we're going to hear about next week and the following. It's interesting that they use as an example that there was a four-year-old boy way back in the 40s, I think, who was found wandering along his street, and he was white as a sheet, glazed over, and he, his, he was found by neighbors, and they took him to his house, and they could not get out of him what had happened. Then they remembered that the four-year-old boy was with a friend playing near the train tracks. They went to the train tracks and found his little buddy was completely dismembered by the train all along the tracks. That four-year-old boy was Stephen King. Even to this day, Stephen King does not remember one single thing about the event that happened when he was a child. What makes dissociation so interesting is the fact that people with dissociated minds will then act, speak, and operate based on the information stored in this separate place in their heads throughout their entire lives while not actually being able to recall any of the specifics about the traumatic events. Especially, it occurs with writers. I would suggest that it would be most like someone placing magic lenses over your eyes and you not knowing it and them coloring everything you see and do. But it wasn't the first three operations that completely opened the dissociated place in Joseph's head. There was, this was still happening because his leg had not healed. Again, put yourself in the child's bed. Now you're laying there reeling for who knows how long from an illness and this insipid invasion, invasion and then one day you start to hear the uh, hoof beats of horses coming down the road. Maybe the last time you heard hoof beats was when the doctor came to visit with the sword. Now you hear a growing thunder and then they stop. There's a knock at the door and boot stamps enter the house by the dozen. Suddenly your bedroom door opens and there is not one doctor there, dressed in white, dressed in operation garb, but there are a dozen all of them bearing their instruments, all of them ready to inflict more pain upon the leg that has suffered the trauma twice. According to Dr. Moraine, the founder of the college where he taught, Dr. Nathan Smith, always traveled with the full accoutrements of his practice, and it can be assured that the other 12 men carried those uh, weapons in with them to the bedroom too. This included long knives, clamps, spreaders, and saws to amputate limbs. The intention was to amputate the leg. Unquestionably, the boy was in a minimally a sheer state of terror. Then Joseph watched as his mother left the room, who was the recipient of his adoration, and his father would hold him bound with the others while they began to operate on the leg. Remember, this was not the rough and tumble Joseph Smith they paint of this guy on the frontier who was strong and can beat anybody in town at wrestling. This was a six-year-old boy. Says Moraine, in traditional Western culture, women do the nurturing until it's time for violence. He says, midwives deliver babies, men perform C-sections. Women feed the chickens, men slaughter them. So while Lucy and Joseph's father understood what was going on, Joseph Smith did not. 
and most, most likely, writes Moraine, having tasted the sweetness of his mother's deepest affections just a short time ago, did he witness her leaving him as the climactic act of his betray her betrayal? Somewhere in the boy's mind, it must have seemed that these 12 men with swords were there to act upon the ultimate payment of his body. Maybe they would cut his leg clean off. Certainly a symbol of Oedipal guilt. Of all the instruments that would have terrified him most, uh, the doctor says it's the sword-like instrument used for amputation. This image, as we will see, would never cease to occupy Joseph Smith's fantasies, writings, temple ceremonies, everything that he did. What actually in, occurred in the room to this day is not known. It was not recorded. Joseph Smith says he does, did not know. Joseph never recalled any of the details. His mother only recalled screaming and returning to a room that was completely dressed in white without a drop of blood anywhere. Dr. Moraine, using his skills and knowledge of the time, describes the events. We're going to go to the phones after I describe this. 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. He writes, the swollen pus-filled tissues were cleaved once again. The sensitive periosteum was stripped back. The trephining was drilled and twisted into the bone. The largest chunk of dead bone was pried free with a hook. Blood poured after it. Forceps grabbed smaller chunks and forcefully dislodged them from the fresh edges of the sensitive living tissue. Saws cut through the margins. The geysers of blood was stemmed by cloth packing, and then it was over. Joseph's leg would someday heal. His psyche would not. End quote. This experience, coupled and compounded by a few others, completely explains much of the secret operating a system by which Joseph wrote, received revelation, practiced polygamy, and constructed the Book of Mormon. Next week, we'll examine those parallels to that experience with those areas in Mormonism. Let's go to the phone. The lines are full. We're going to go to Jane in New Mexico, first-time caller. Jane, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. Thank you so much. You're uh, welcome. Pastor, I'm just calling, well, number one, to encourage your heart. Thanks. And tell you uh, what a wonderful and brave thing you're doing. Brave or stupid, right? No, brave. I'm sure our Heavenly Father is very, very happy with what you're doing. I'm an ex-Mormon, dear, uh -huh. um, and I'm not a young person, so I've been around for a while. Uh-huh. And I have done a lot of studying. And uh, I'm, I'm, I used to be where your viewers are now, confused, in bondage, and half crazy. And these, uh, the, the Mormon people are precious people, but they've been deceived. Uh, you know, they've yeah. been lied to. And, you know, when, uh, when you accept a lie as truth, then you'll defend it to the death. Yeah. And you're afraid to move out and, and learn the truth. So what would you suggest, Janet? You, have you become a Christian? Yes. What would you suggest to our, our listening audience? Well, I have a word from the Lord, and if you will, it's just a paragraph. And he says to his people, if you want to know the truth, then you come apart, my beloved. Lay aside all the books that you have accepted as truth 
and read my word. My word is truth, and the truth will set you free. The enemies told you that the Bible has not been translated correctly, but that's a lie. And when you don't have the word, you have nothing to measure. You have no plumb line. And then you're led off into error. Amen. So I just want to encourage them. I love the LDS, LDS people. I have family right. who, are, who are in it. But anyway... Well, Jane, your, uh, your advice, your paragraph, your word from the Lord was excellent. It's great advice, and I hope anybody who's searching for truth uh, took that to heart and takes your, takes your advice in that way. I hope so, too, because it'll set them free. Amen. Thank you, Jane. God bless you. God bless you, too, dear. Bye-bye. We're going to a bishop, he says, LDS Bishop Jim. Jim, you're on Heart of the Matter. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Jim. How are you? Good, Sean. Hey, uh, just wondering what you're drinking. Just want to let me what? Just wondering what you're drinking there. Wait, I can't, we, we have an audio problem. I'm sorry, I'm just wondering what you're drinking. Oh, it's, in my family we call this uh, Wola, which means it's mostly water with a little bit of cola. Uh-huh. Normally you have it in a cup instead of a, a glass. And... <laughs> Are you, are, are you trying to accuse me of drinking something sinister, Jim? No, no, no. Oh. No, no. It, it's Jones. never coffee, because I've only drank coffee one time, tasted it, and I hated it. Okay. Yeah, it's no. just water. No, that's not my purpose for calling. Okay, what's happening? My purpose for calling is I want to have a personal conversation with you in a public place, anywhere you'd like, uh, for at least an hour, maybe two hours. Okay. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm LDS, born and raised in the church. Okay. Uh, a former bishop, uh, served a mission. Uh, what are you doing now? Uh, 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 semi-active. You're, uh, you're what? Semi-active. You're semi-active. Uh-huh. Do you want to have this uh, discussion in order to do what, Jim? I find you fascinating. You seem to be interested in what motivates and what, uh, what uh, caused Joseph Smith to be who he is. Yeah. I, w- I want to know more about you, Sean. Oh, okay. I want to know more about you and why you are who you are, uh, aside from what you say on the TV. How about that? that that's fine. Do, when you say a public place, you just mean like a restaurant. You don't mean a public forum where there's an audience, do you? No, no, just you and I. Oh, sure, anytime. Email me, uh, Sean at Aletheia Ministries, and, uh, and I'll read it when I read it. I'll respond to that one, and we'll get together. But you'd say you don't get to your emails. No, I get the, we get the emails, and I read through them, but it's just I can't respond to all of them. Okay, but you will respond to me. Absolutely. I'd love put, to talk to you. Put Jim the Bishop in the, in the byline. Great. Thanks. Okay, Jim. God bless you. I'll do that. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. We'll report on the show how our that discussion goes. We're going to Frank in West Valley City. Frank, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm doing well, Frank. How are you? Uh, pretty good. I, I met you not too long ago, and you said I looked like a guy you went to high school with. So if you can picture that, I'm, I'm that guy. <laughs> you only went to high school with one guy, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> anyway, no, just kind of lighten the mood a little bit. Uh, I, uh, wa- I, I'm new to the area, and I have a Christian background, but uh, you know, I'm new to this, this Mormon thing, and you know, I've heard of them, of course, growing up, but I'm, I'm, I'm bombarded by them, man. They're everywhere. Yeah. And I'm, I'm from Southern California, 
But anyway, I recently heard uh, one of them make, I worked with a few of them, he made a comment about, um, you know, having their own worlds or whatever. They, they get their own planet or something like that afterwards. Yeah. And immediately when he said that, I thought to myself, I thought, wow, that's strikingly similar to Satan because yeah. doesn't he's the prince of the earth. So I'm thinking it's interesting how they may be receiving information that could very well be true, but yet it's not beneficial because if they have their own earth or their own world, if that's true, certainly they're going to be separated from God. So who wants that? Huh. You know, oh, that's and interesting. I, I I, I've never, never looked at it that way. That, but yeah, what's your what's your thought on that? I, I think that's a, an insightful point. So your point is that, like Satan, uh, he was cast from God's presence. He uh -huh. came down and, and inherited this earth when he got Adam to cash in the title deed, and so uh, therefore. That is kind of what you're saying could possibly be the result of uh, Latter-day Saints following this, this idea that they're going to become gods and have their own worlds. Exactly, because isn't it, isn't it true that they are, they're kind of motivated in, in that respect? Are they kind of motivated to obtain something for themselves? I mean, that, to me, that's selfish ambition. Generally entirely. speaking, generally speaking uh, I think I can safely say that the active, faithful Latter-day Saints are, generally speaking, motivated by becoming gods, procreating for eternity, having endless children, and having planets in which they uh, oversee and govern just like God the Father. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, I, I really appreciate what you're doing. I, I try to catch you every week, and you're only on Tuesdays, right? Yeah, we're on Tuesday uh, evenings now, and then we replay this show next Tuesday morning from 11 to 12. Okay, and is it possible to... Can we come in the studio and watch you live? Or? You can. Uh, go to the website. It'll give you uh, directions, www.bornagainmormon.com. Uh -huh. and, uh, and the studio's here in Salt Lake. You're always welcome. We have a very handsome and delightful studio audience tonight. Well, cool. I'm sure I could add to that. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I look forward to seeing this. All right. Appreciate it, buddy. All right. Appreciate take care. Appreciate what you're doing. God bless you. God bless. Bye-bye. Okay, we're going to read quickly a couple things. I was just handed this by uh, a faithful operator of ours. This was in the newspaper. I don't know where it was. City Weekly, it looks like. But it looks like the LDS Church has done many vicarious uh, genealogical work for noted people. Not only uh, what I talked about, Ted Bundy, but Adolf Hitler, Martin Bormann, Benito Mussolini, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong, Vlad the Impaler, Blackbeard the Pirate, Jean and Pierre Lafitte, Al Capone, Bonnie and Clyde, and Bugsy Siegel. Now, I have to somewhat defend the LDS uh, church proper because I know that the brethren are not happy hearing this. I'm assuming that some comic in the LDS church is going and he is submitting this information, genealogical information, to a temple. And then he or she is going through the temple in the name of that, this person. And then the work is done and it's recorded on the genealogical database. The LDS church will say, we can't control with the vast amount of work that's being done in all these temples, who is submitted and who is not. So just to be fair, that is what has happened here. I doubt very much that... They're trying to uh, have that work done for them. Not that those people can't be forgiven uh, in this life had they accepted Jesus Christ. Understand the difference. This post-mortem thing's a, a lie. But had Hitler come to terms, tough to say, had he come to terms with who Jesus was, repented, 
and gave his heart, life, soul, and, and Jesus became his Lord and Master, I believe that he would have been saved. Absolutely. The blood of Jesus covers all sin. All. Uh, but we use them as kind of the icons of immorality and, and, and horrible things. And so that's what, that, what's being talked about there. Okay, uh, we've got several emails. Um, let me see. We're going to, Ed Jones says, Hey, I just thought I'd let you know how sick I am of listening to your nonsense. It is sad that you have chosen to be the hand of Satan. Uh, uh, you could have been a fine man. But this is the great thing he says. He says, why don't you just see what you can do for your own salvation rather than bringing others to the brink of death? And that I wrote back to him, Ed Jones, is the, it really encapsulates Mormonism. What I can do for my own salvation. It was when I realized that there was nothing I could do for my own salvation that led me to see that I had lived a life 40 years of futility a life of empty actions to try to please a holy and omnipotent God. And when I had that realization, I became poor in spirit. I began to mourn for the life I lived. I became meek, as it says in Matthew 5, verse 3, 4, and 5, how you, this process begins to happen to you, and that's called spiritual rebirth, because I saw who I was relative to who God is. And when that happens, just like Isaiah, just like Peter, just like Paul, anybody who has an interaction with God that's human, is going to fall to their face and say, Lord, you know, I'm not worthy. Lord, am I going to be destroyed? They have great fear. Guess what? In all of the interactions that your leaders have claimed to have with angelic beings and with God himself, none of them write that they were ever afraid. They all just act like it was, wow, hey, there's dad. How you doing? And yet when you read the Bible, everybody, Isaiah, they are terrified in the presence of God. Daniel, all of them. So there's the difference, Ed Jones. Lister of New Rochelle doesn't have a state. You pick on, pick on, pick on, mock the LDS faith, but how do you explain the overabundance of good fruit we produce and why? We're going to get to the calls in just a second. Well, Lister, um, it's just like what I talked about at the beginning. In fact, I don't even need to rehearse this. The fruit that comes is fruit of the Spirit. It's not material Fruit. Now, yes, fruits of the Spirit are going to lead somebody to do good things for the poor and to, and to establish schools and to, and to establish hospitals and, and, and give and all those things that would come with the Christian spirit. But it is, the fruit of the Spirit is love. It is not this idea of working. If it was working, the Shriners and their hospitals and their eyeglasses for the blind and, and, and all these other institutions will be, will be viable for, for heaven, wouldn't they? So it's not those type of works that you have to understand. And I think when you say, what about all our good fruits, you're talking about you know, all the niceness and things that, you've, that the LDS Church does. And that's really not the point at all. We've covered that in much more depth and with much more clarity in times past, but I just don't have it in my mind now. We're going to Steve, West Valley City, line four. Steve, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. I have a question. Yes, Steve. Um, when it comes to seeing or being reunited with your family, you know, in the however many levels of heaven there are, according to the LDS, do you have to be sealed to them, you know, in the temple? How does that work? Yeah, you, if you're going to be reunited with you as a family in the celestial kingdom, the highest degree where you become a god, then 
that is the only place where you would be reunited, reunited as a family unit. Any place lesser, you could be reunited with family members, but you're not going to be a family unit. That Unless the family unit the is lost. Room. Then I got you. Yeah. Okay. All right. Then that 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 makes a little bit more sense. I, I'm not LDS. I'm I'm more of an agnostic, but I'm what? I'm, I'm kind of new here. With do you, do you go to a Calvary Chapel? There's one here, I hear, in yeah. Salt Lake City. Uh, well, I'm in California on Sunday mornings before I fly out here. But I go to Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, California, in the mornings with my wife. But um, uh, Calvary Chapel is a great place to go. In fact, I would recommend it. They teach the word, which is what is needed. Just like that earlier caller said, Jane, you got to hear the word. And, and Calvary Chapels teach the word. I know of two, Joe McCormick's in American Fort and Terry Long's in Salt Lake City. Both Calvary Chapels, excellent churches to check out. And it, I would just suggest to you, Steve, just check it out. Give the Lord a chance. And uh, just, can we send you our book too? Absolutely. Well, uh, stay online and the operator will pick up, get your address and we'll send you the book. And the first part talks about spiritual rebirth and check that out and maybe we can talk. Sounds great. All right, man, stay on the line. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, Steve, someone pick it up and let's go to Tim in Boise, Idaho. Tim, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well, Tim. How are you? I'm doing all right, actually. All right. You have a question or a comment? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not. Um, I'm not too familiar with you know the LDS faith in general, but I do have a guy that works for me, and you know he is LDS, and we were having a discussion about you know about polygamy and particularly what role it plays in your guys's you know religion if it plays a major role at all. Uh huh. And I was just curious, you know, because myself as well as you know other people have seen you know stories on the news and can always believe what they say, and it's always nice to hear both sides of you know, what has to be said. Well, polygamy was what Utah was built on, and it, is, it was the practice of polygamy, the belief in polygamy, and the belief that if you didn't practice it, you could not live with God, that built Utah and, at the hands of Brigham Young and other men, John Taylor and those who followed afterward. When Utah was applying for statehood, uh, the, the federal government said, listen, we are not granting statehood to a territory of people that practice one of the twin, twins of uh, barbarism, slavery and or polygamy. And you guys practice polygamy, so you've got to stop. Well, they said, okay, we're going to stop. And they secretly practiced it. And then the federal government found out and they said, no, you really have to stop. And so they came out and they started putting people in jail. So then they, would, they came out with a manifesto in 1890 that said, okay, we're not going to do it anymore. D. Michael Quinn gives us a great history of how they said to the general, that's it, there's a revel, no more. This manifesto says no more polygamy. And the leaders kept practicing it, kept adding on, because they fully and completely believed they needed to practice it in order to live in the highest degree of the celestial kingdom. Finally, after about another five or eight or 12 years, something like that, they finally came out and said, okay, it's really done now, no more. And they outlawed the practice only. But Tim, they have not outlawed, they have not asked, they have not said they made a mistake with it. They have not renounced the practice. It's still in Doctrine and Covenants 132. Most, generally speaking, LDS men who live active, faithful lives believe in the principle. 
They call it the principle. They believe that when they die, they will have more than one wife. And in fact, if I was an active LDS man and my wife died, I could have another one sealed to me for time and all eternity so that when she dies and I die, the two wives and myself will be together in heaven forever. So polygamy is still a vital part of Mormonism. Yet, publicly, they will claim we have nothing to do with it. Nothing at all. And it's a lie. They do have things to do with it. They still believe it in their hearts. They still practice it spiritually in their temples. And they have not renounced it in the, from their doctrine in the Doctrine and Covenants. Does that help you out? Well, that's, uh, that, that's you know, commendable that, they, that they're willing to stand by their beliefs. But, you well, know, like I said, you know, what, what role exactly does that play? And, I mean, morally, I mean, if, if you think about it, I mean, morally, some of the things that take place regarding polygamy are kind of out of whack. Yes. I, I, do, I do understand that, you know, that each person is entitled to their own faith and each person is entitled to, you know, a free will. But, you know, I was also understanding that, you know, LDS as well as, you know, most denominations of, you know, faith, as far as religion is concerned, they build strongly on family. That your family... Well, they is, better if they're practicing polygamy. Well, yeah, I mean, I would like... I, I don't know, I'm just... I'm Listen, really confused. My, you know, Tim, there, there was this, Tim, let me just explain. From a Christian perspective, God created Adam and Eve... And it was two become one, not three become one or four become one. And uh -huh. from a man's perspective, from a liberal perspective, you can say, well, you know, everyone has their peculiarities and live and let live. But Christians yeah. operate by this manual, like Jane said. And this manual is vitally important to both our happiness here and our eternal life with God. And the manual is not for polygamy. Now, if you want to see what, the, what happens with polygamy, go through the manual and read about the men who practiced it and see how it turned out for them in the manual. God may have permissively said, okay, you want to go down that road, go ahead. Just like he let Balaam go off and do his thing, but he didn't want it. He lets us go out and do stuff, but he's gonna, he's gonna, it's going to result in misery. You want to see polygamy in action, go down to southern Utah, and you look in the faces of those women, you talk to them, you look at the children, and you just listen and see about what it's all about compared to a monogamous husband and wife, man and woman, married together. The differences are profound. Polygamy is an evil practice, and I could not in good conscience say, well, yeah, live and let live. They do their polygamy. It's okay. They're good people. They love families. It's not a good thing, Tim. We are absolutely out of time. I appreciate your call. Listen, tune in next week. We'll now bring in some evidences that show that this event in Joseph Smith's childhood certainly had an impact on him one way or another into what he wrote, said, and did. See you then.
Oh, <laughs> 